Welcome to the Hypnotic Comic Live Show. Finding that entertainment without meaning isn't cutting it anymore? Do you want to feel deeply connected, yet lifted up into the heights of laughter? You found that place where comedy meets the full expansion of life's possibilities. Now, for your hypnotically comical host, Jenna Grayson! Oh my gosh, I think that's me. Wowzers, what an intro. Thank you so much. That's our producer, Doug, and he sounds like that all the time, believe it or not. That's how he talks. Um, welcome to the show. This is the Hypnotic Comic Live show. I am your hostess. Do we still say hostess in this, at this time of the human human experience? I'm your hostess, Jenna Grayson, and uh, we just had a show last night. It was very exciting at the House of Blues, my first time there. Um, it was a great turnout and a really great uh, comedy show. And then my next show will be this coming Friday, March, what is it, 20th? Shit. This coming Friday, March 15th, that's what it is, this coming Friday, March 15th, at uh, 7 o'clock at the Comedy Store in Hollywood, um, California. And so I hope to see you guys there. Today we have a really, really special, exceptional human guest uh, on the show today. Her name is Claire Ratfield, and uh, I'm really excited to talk to Claire. She uh, is basically my own personal historian um, for the Comedy Store um, She's been working with the Comedy Store since the 70s, was the opening act for uh, Shirley Hemphill from the What's Happening TV show, and um, worked with such names as Robin Williams, David Letterman, Sandra Bernhardt. She won um, a CBS Golden Apple Award and uh, a Teaching Excellence Award from Johns Hopkins University, and she's been a director of Broadway musicals for children for 38 years. She started doing her comedy in 1975, trained with George Carlin, the George Carlin, and uh, MC even performed at the Comedy Store in Hollywood, uh, working with those names as I brought them up, uh, Robin Williams, Dave Letterman. We'll be talking about more about that during our conversation today. Um, she also worked as an MC at the Laugh Stop, performed frequently at Joan Rivers Club, um, called the Little Club. Um, and one of the things that I'm so inspired about with Claire is that much of her humor and inspiration in her life's work has resulted from a dramatic trauma that she endured, which has recently resurfaced in the media. Um, and she's courageously moving back into the world of comedy now at the age, stand-up comedy at the age of 72. So please help me to welcome my beautiful guest, Claire Ratfield. Thank you, Claire, for joining us. Well, thank you for the very nice introduction. You're welcome. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Well-deserved. It's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm wondering if you might feel comfortable just going straight into that last part of what we talked about there and 
terms of what, how you've been inspired to do comedy because of something that really was really terrible in your life experience. Would you mind going straight there? Before sure. we go into well, more of the fun stuff, we'll start with the darkness. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, like, um, in 1973, I was uh, came home from teaching, and and uh, before I tried to get out of my car, someone jumped into the car and put his put a knife to my neck, and uh, mm. I thought it was my my roommate's boyfriend. I said, "Oh yeah, really funny," but it turned out to be a horrific, uh, brutal attack. Uh, a rape, and um, it was so, so such an existential moment for me because when he was at the very end going to kill me, and he was wrapping the the clothes around my neck and strangling me, I said to him, "You can't kill me because I have 400 kids. I'm walking for the March of Dimes." Mm-hmm. And suddenly he let go, and I think it was the March of Dimes that saved my life. Wow. So. Uh, so that event by itself, I realized that, you know, human sexuality, I mean, it was such a trauma that I thought, you know, and my parents, you know, flew out. They said, you know, do you, you, know, do you need therapy? And I, I said, no, I think I'll write comedy. And they just thought I was really out of my mind. And uh, so uh, George Carlin had an advertisement on the, in the L.A. Times about offering comedy writing classes. So I went up to L.A., drove up six weeks, took classes from him. He told me about the comedy store. Then I started at the comedy store, started doing really well at the comedy store, and then became, I emceed there in the in the main room, but then Mitzi opened up the belly room, and then I became a regular MC at the weekends at the belly room because I was still teaching. And then uh, for about five years. And then, um, and then because I really had no intention of doing this other than just therapy, um, I didn't really have an agent or didn't even plan to have an agent. So Shirley Hempel was uh, my closest friend. And I uh, actually, it was really funny because I started like feeding her because, you know, the comics have no money and I happen to have some resources. So I'd buy her burgers or something. And then I ended up rooming in the same hotel that she roomed with. Oh my God, what a flea bag that was. And then uh, (laughs) would drive her to the driver to the comedy store so we became very close friends because I was kind of her her ride and everything. And then so when she went on the road, like in the summer times, I would be her opening act. I went to Texas where I saw um, Ellen, and then I went to Hawaii, places like that. So I, I was her opening act when she was on the road, uh, and it was it just was fun because I didn't have to have an agent. And so, uh, but I, again, it was not really my life focus. Really, was teaching, and it really was. Uh, and then when uh, then you know we the comedy store went on strike because uh, they were not paying any they weren't paying any of us uh, uh, we took her to we struck we took it to the labor board and um, so a lot of comics I was also the MC down here in the last stop in Newport Beach a lot of the comics were big name comics were coming down to Newport because they weren't going to work they needed to work out material. And that's where Robin, Robin and I had a, a couple other great relationships. And then, um, but he came down, and I guess I had had a pretty, pretty good set. And he told me he thought I should quit teaching and find my passion, and become a comedian. And I thought, after seeing him perform, <laughs> and watching him, and realizing that when somebody throws a tampon on stage, he can do 20 minutes off of the tampon, 
I can't do two <laughs> seconds off of a tampon. It became, it became, what did he do? What did he do? Oh my god! It was it was amazing. It was like Shakespeare. It was uh, you know talking to the head. It was a, uh, I, I just he just kept converting it to all these things, and the audience was screaming. They were laughing so hard. I, could, oh, I it was it was just so. I mean, it, it just. I mean, I can still see the this. He's holding this tampon like he's talking to Shakespeare. I mean, you know the you know the head of Yurak or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it was a clean tampon. Was it? New? No, 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 no. It was. It was. It was the case. It was like, but in but, the package. But he did, yeah, in the package. But he did take it off and have the little string, and then it became a fuzz. <laughs> and he was twirling it around. <laughs> That's Robin. What the hell do you get that? Anyway, when he told me, and then he said, you know, you got to find your passion, and then. Two weeks later, we had a comic, his name was Steve Lubbockin, who just thought his life was over because he could no longer perform. And, he, you know, if you're on the strike line, you know, you were, you were blacklisted. And, we're, and so he just felt that he would never be able to perform again and uh, jumped off the top of the Hyatt Regency. And that's when I had my oh epiphany. My I said, you know, I'm here for therapy. My therapy's over. This still, and you know, and I know you're a comedian, uh, you know, women still don't have the same cachet as men do. It just, for whatever reason you think with the women's movement, whatever, there'd be much more of a cultural explosion than that. But I, but I, mm. but it's, uh, if you look percentage wise, you still see more male comics than you do mm-hmm. female comics in terms of making it, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That, that, you know, knowing that and knowing that I don't have, have Robin Williams's uh, abilities. I went back to full time for teaching, just occasional, mostly at the last stop, and they beach ball down in here. I would do it occasionally, and then, um, and then I converted my love for the arts towards producing Broadway musicals. So in 1979, mm. I started with Annie, and after that, I've done every mm. Disney. I've done Beauty and the Beast. I've done, uh, you know, I've done Willy Wonka. I've done. You know, you, you name it, I've done the musical. And uh, and they were all award-winning until well, the county stopped giving awards. But for a while there, we were always winning first place in our... Because I, I teach in Newport Beach, and it's one of the most uh, giving communities for the arts. And when I was... When we were performing, I mean, I had a mom actually donate, build my whole stage. There was nothing there. And she gave me $15,000 to build yourself a stage. On the condition, she said, wow. on the condition, she said, my name is anonymous because I'm wow. not doing this for me. I'm doing this for kids. And now, you know, 20, 25 years later, we have this amazing stage for kids. Amazing. And so, yeah. And, and so, so the community's always contributed. I mean, when you see, I, I remember a favorite one guy said to me once, he said, well, how much, how much does this cost you to put on this? What, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000? Mm-hmm. I said no because he said why I said all in-house all in-house donations all that carpentry works all done by builders in the community that built for free for me so my mm-hmm. sets literally look like secret gym or Broadway they are so amazing because my parents come together as a community to create the arts mm-hmm. for kids so anyway the kids I transferred parents. the kids parents yeah. the kids yeah, yeah the kids parents so right. I created I became then involved in the arts for kids and I you know I and um, I do the uh, talent show and things like that. So because I just think, 
as you know, I think the arts are have such capacity to transform the soul. And I don't know if you know this in terms of history, but the, the, the Spartans were, you know, their, their evil, brutal, will-kill mentality were never allowed to have art because they were told it made them feel. And that's exactly what doing comedy and doing art is. It makes people reconnect with their humanity, their world, their who and what they are, they redefine themselves. And that's what, why you're doing it, that's why I'm doing it, is because it, it. yeah, and and you, and you, I listen to you work, I mean, you, you have much more of a spiritual looking into uh, comedy, and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's part of, you see comedy from a whole different perspective in terms of its, its power to, to transform the soul like meditation can. So, uh, I mean, that's how I, I see you as doing it. So, and me Thank too. You. So I see comedy as, for me, I see it as an art form. And of course, now I'm, that I'm retired, I'm passionate about uh, changing the culture of teaching and, and uh, through technology and pedagogy. So I've started my own foundation, and I'm trying to raise money. I only need about $15 million. So anybody ready to give it to me. I'm ready to change education. Just put out your email now. Heck. <laughs> Cratfield at gmail.com. If you'd like to yeah, make yeah. a million dollar donation for Claire's oh, foundation. Sure. Donations yeah. for the foundation. That's where to do it. That would do it, yes. It's called Envision Education 21, the site foundation. The community cool. Incentives for Teaching Excellence, yeah. We anyway. have so much to talk about. You're bringing up I know, so many I know. exciting points. Well, I want to, I want to like bring up a couple of things. There's a couple of things here that you're bringing up that I'm like, oh my gosh, we could have like a whole hour conversation about uh, right. like yeah, four or five different things that you're bringing up here that I, I have like, I have like my mouth is like I'm salivating. I'm like, that's delicious, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> delicious stuff. Yeah, so I love this idea how you were talking about comedy and art's power to transform the soul like meditation can. I mean, that's just so exciting, and that really is so much of, you know, I think that's where you and I have so much in common and where a lot of my passion and interest in having this conversation with you and going deeper with you when we first met at an open mic and we had this conversation about all of this and talking about some of your extraordinary life experiences I was like we got to talk I, I need to I wanted like I just wanted to know more and at the same time I was like people will benefit so much from hearing your life experiences as well as your the perspective that you have that's come from um you know, your life experiences that's come from the wisdom that's unfolded from, you know, a lot of which, you know, has been really dark, dark, horrible experiences. And now you're in this place of service to other people um, to educate and encourage people's soul transformation. And I want to ask you a number of things about that. But first of all, this concept of transforming the soul, what does that mean to you? And why is that of interest you and is that your your passion yes. and, I, and i have to say yeah. that I think there's a there's a backstory to even to the comedy and that's transforming the soul is i'm obsessed with the 
with the exponential rise in suicides in young in youth today. Yeah, uh, kids me that, too. And 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 uh, you know you can't pick up the paper where you see this these these tragic deaths of just yesterday some some 23 year old cyclist from the from the Olympics just committed suicide. And you said oh oh, t- you told me there was a comedian that just committed yeah. suicide. A, a pay, he's a paid regular at the comedy store just a couple weeks ago. Actually, tonight, <clears throat> this is being recorded, if you're listening to us in the lot, later broadcast of the podcast, this is uh, March 11th. It's uh, going to be the memorial. It's going to be a memorial service and celebration of life at the comedy store in Hollywood. Um, but it's you have to email, email them if you wanted to go. But... Um, for Brody Stevens, so Brody is a regular at the Comedy Store just a couple weeks ago, committed suicide. He was in the movie The Hangover um, in one of the jail scenes, uh, speaking part. Yeah, and it's it's so it's so traumatizing. Even like on the you know, I'm, I wasn't close to him, but I've seen him perform. I've seen him at the Comedy Store a number of times. But it's like to hear about you know you're bringing up this idea of suicide and how you know, we're we're in such a fragile, delicate, desperate time, such uncertain times and the, the, the desperation that people are feeling, it's like it can bring it up within ourselves. You know, it's like there can be that domino effect when one person commits suicide then other people do it and feel this like sense of permission to let their desperation, you know, motivate their actions to end the possibility of something improving for their lives. But go on, you're saying that you're, yeah. you have well, a Well, because I had my own flirtation with, with suicide, and I think that mm. raw experience, in a, you know, mm. and, it, and I think that the time and the moment is really ca- encapsulates everything that's happening to young people today, that we get mm. sucked into a very narrow focus on life where mm. we can't see beyond anything. And I was 23 years old. The reason I was on top of a rooftop, almost I can't even compare to anything I've, that I that's happened to me since then in terms of pain. But I, but but one of the things that happens is what they call uh, copycat suicides. The yes. week before, yeah. week before at the University of Arizona, somebody had jumped off a roof, and that became my solution set to my simple mm. problems that I was dealing. Many, many of these young suicides are, are people that are dealing with just an episodic moment. Now, I think your suicide uh, that you talked about, the person was bipolar and he had some biological issues. But so many of the, yeah. the kids today are contemplating or do commit suicide because of some narrow focus in their life and they can't see beyond that. Mm-hmm. And I know that when I was standing on the rooftop, for whatever reason, which I, I can't even forgive myself, but I do believe that this was my life. This was the moment that transformed my life and actually contributed to me resolving my trauma with my rape, was I was on top of a rooftop, and I remembered someone told me, you need to transfer mental pain to physical pain. Just run. And I just ran, and I ran, and I ran. I was at the University of Arizona. It was a beautiful night. I still remember and and I, and it's like 11 o'clock at night, and I'm just in flight away from my insanity, and I run into this guy, and he falls on the ground, and he yells at me, can't you see where you're going? I turn around, and the man was blind. 
Wow. At that moment, it's like I had this burst of light just 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 shower me going, you need to pay attention. Can you see where you're going? And I realized wow. I apologized to whatever life force that was to say, no, I can't. I didn't. So moving five years forward, when wow. when when I suffered really what was real trauma, uh, because the rape was, I mean, it was existential. It was like I was going to die. There was no question. Mm-hmm. When I experienced real trauma, I couldn't explain to my parents that five years later, earlier, I was on top of a rooftop. I couldn't tell them. And I couldn't tell them that I had the vision of a blind man, that I knew that I needed to open whatever that narrow focus was. And this was a big focus at the time. I mean, I had the right to be traumatized. I had the right to be, you know, consumed. But I knew that there was something else out there. I had it open the door to that. And the blind man gave me vision to see my future or to see that there was a future. Because, you know, when you're taking a risk, and I'm using you as an example too, when you're taking a risk, like even you're doing this this podcast or this radio show, all these are risks. All these are, you're stepping out into this chaos of the unknown, but it's the excitement of not knowing where you're going, but knowing that you are going, that just just satisfies the soul. I mean, you, you wake up the next day and say, why am I doing that? I said, because I feel better today. You know, I feel better today for doing something instead of being consumed by my grief, instead of being eaten alive by, by, by which was legitimate trauma. I mean, my trauma is legitimate. But my decision to do, and how fortuitous was that that George Garland makes an ad in the LA Times and I, you know, go up to this class. I mean, but, I mean, this all happened, you know, and I keep thinking this life, whatever this life force that is, you know, being a former Catholic, I think it's my guardian angel, so I'm, I have to admit. Right. Anyway. <laughs> I understand. Sometimes you got to wonder, like, how are all these things coming together? Yeah, together you know, you look like, back. Yeah, yeah, it's always like, I mean, I think you're Jewish, but, you know, if you're Catholic, you always had a guardian angel, you know. And uh, my mother used to say, used to sit on, a, on her shoulder and mess up her hair. But um, so some force. All this yeah. uh, serendipitous collision of, uh, of of opportunities all yeah. happening at the same time. But again, That's right. and I and I I'm, I'm complimenting you too. It has to have an element of risk to it mm-hmm. because that, because that means you're stepping you're stepping higher. You're reaching beyond your own grasp. You're trying mm-hmm. to do something that you didn't know you could do. But that excitement is, that's where the excitement and the revitalization, revitalization of your soul, that's the center of it, knowing that you're doing something that people don't think you can do or, or question you or whatever. So, so that's how I started with the, the blind man. And now when I run into problems, I say, oh, it's just a blind curve. That's my little, you know, whenever wow. something, you know, I'm going through something now that I'm not allowed to even talk about, but I would. I would say that it's equal to the same emotional trauma, but I looking at it as a blind curve, and uh, and I'm just moving on. And, okay. uh, I and now, 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 yeah. now my uh, interest, my curiosity is like raised. You said that you're going through something that you're not allowed to talk about. Is it like a legal thing, or it's involving yes. somebody else? Yes. Uh huh. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. And uh, so it's That's stupid. Okay. I understand. It's a dumb thing. 
And they it, usually are. They usually are, unless um, there's, you know, murder, rape involved. Francis them to 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 retard it, so, but that's another. But that's another. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I love this term. Okay, okay. Right. So, Claire, I love this term. I think I'm going to name this show. This is something you just said: the revitalization of the soul. Like that's that should be the name of your book or podcast or something. Like that's such a beautiful statement, and um, I feel like that's so much of the theme of what we're talking about is like how do we do that when we're faced with such incredible life problems and do it boldly and taking risks, as you're saying, when we're, you know, potentially suffering unsurmountably, you know, it's like, for me, I just want to say, I started going into comedy during a really difficult time. I was going through a divorce and my father was on hospice. Like, that is not funny, you know, like laughing at myself. But uh, it's, you know, it, it, it's absolutely been one of the most challenging, difficult times of my life. That's like, I could, I've had thoughts about suicide and that comes to me too, where it's like the pain is too much and I can't continue on. So I need to find reasons to laugh because that's, you know, that's actually thankfully something that I grew up with. Both of my parents were very funny people and we would joke about stuff in order to deal with it, you know, like we didn't talk about that. We didn't talk about what that process was. But, you know, my sister and I have talked about that, like looking back, like, you know, maybe maybe we, we overused comedy. But I also see like, you know, you brought up that I'm Jewish and I see that in that culture, the Jewish culture, that a lot of Jewish people are funny. And I absolutely believe that that has come from a way of transmuting our suffering and rising above the effects of oppression and the fear of the Holocaust that still exists in people's bodies and their DNA and their subconscious minds, this trauma. And like, I, I, um, you know, you brought up meditation. I do teach meditation and I work with people in hypnotherapy and it's um, something that's come up quite a bit is people's trauma that is unrecognized, that's expressed through their body, that people don't know how to move trauma through their body, and then they get physical conditions or mental health problems. You know, we were talking about um, depression and bipolar disorder. There's just so much trauma behind it, um, whether it was a direct trauma like yours, Claire, where you were brutally raped and uh, very close to being murdered. Like, there's no question even for a single breath that that was tremendously traumatic for you and then there's also subtler traumas that um i've been seeing coming up lately in people things like feeling unsafe in their body feeling unsafe in their home feeling unsafe in their community and um you know and that coming out in the body in in different ways and it can it can really build up you know and um cause people to feel crazy like what are we supposed to do with these traumas and so I just really appreciate this conversation and again this concept of the revitalization of the soul you know and the opportunity to have these conversations I think is so great and you know thank you for being a survivor in more than one way you know it sounds like you're uh Working on your nine lives in this life. <laughs> yeah, I would say that's true. You know, you, you, you said something that I have to jump onto. I was thinking about 
yeah. uh, you know, pain and comedy, trauma and yeah. comedy. But I, yeah. I remember it was right after the Jonestown murder, and a bunch of African American comics and I, some of them got became really famous. One was George Wallace, who uh-huh. was a very famous comic, who I think he was the mayor of Las Vegas right now or something. Anyway, uh-huh. anyway, so uh, we were all having. Uh, uh, it was always some late night place like like uh, Norms or something in L.A. Okay. And uh, there were about five of us, and then me, and they were making jokes about Jonestown, you know, all those Kool-Aid jokes. And I, 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 I was so upset. And I said to them, I said, why are you, why are you making jokes about this? This is horrific. And one of them looked at me almost like I was crazy and said, don't you know if it hurts, there's a joke in there somewhere? And I went, whoa. I (laughs) I said, whoa. And then I wow. looked at, you know, my my first comedy jokes I wrote were about being overweight and about, you know, all the pain about being the single girl, you know, that people have to bring me along like a, you know, like a, like a puppy, you know, so they bring me along to like a, a, a guide dog, you know, or something or something, and then they, they abandon me and leave me alone in these bars. And, you know, I think, oh my God, that's, I look at every single thing I wrote as some sort of, you know. Uh, linked to see things that were, you know, irritating me about life, and I just reconverted into something funny, you know. And mm, I said, "Yeah, I mean, it was, it was." But that was, that was. It was I mean, it's so simple, but it's so true. When you look at, uh, you know, you start looking at people's jokes. You go, "How did that hurt you?" Yeah, I see. I see. So anyway, yeah, it's it's like this idea that if we can make jokes out of our own pain. It's like it gives people permission to both say, you know, yeah, I suffer too, because we don't really talk about that in our culture. In, in in Eastern cultures, especially like the Buddhist traditions, they talk about suffering, like it's a thing, like it's happening, it's part of the human experience. And I think there's so much value to just like acknowledge that we suffer, acknowledge that we have pain, and then to bring light to it, to say isn't it isn't it kind of funny especially you know once some time or distance has come up that we can laugh at our collective human experience and all of its madness yeah. craziness scariness trauma you know that and that can be really transformative you know that can really free us um on that on that soul level as well as you know everything else that comes from that like the body and our thoughts and emotions and things like that so yeah it's great yeah, in buddhism in buddhism the four noble truths are you know all the world is pain and suffering but the most mm-hmm. important of it is that we are the cause of our pain and suffering and that and then mm-hmm. in order to and then in order oh. to free yourself from that you follow the eight eight path eight what is it eight path. Fold path of righteousness which is mm-hmm. really just the ten commandments you know uh but basically when you follow the right action right. the right right behavior right attitude whatever you 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 suffer less when you are yeah. not when you know and and that's that's such a you know that's why I call myself a Buddhist Catholic. Uh, the Catholics the Catholics, <laughs> the Catholics didn't quite get it right because I'm you know once you're a Catholic it's in your DNA you just can't get rid of it. But Buddhism is really what it is. It's a way of life and it is mm-hmm. it is um, such a peaceful way to to start taking charge of your life without God telling you to do it, but you. As opposed to Jesus Christ controlling your life or God, it's what what makes Buddhist, Buddhism different is is that you're in charge of being the right and good person, and that 
takes That's it to right. a whole level level, which is what which is what Christianity wants you to do, but it gets it gets polluted in all this. Let's make money for our church stuff and and, yeah. and uh, all the icons. Whereas Buddhism was, and he never wanted to be a god. He never meant to be a god. He never said he was a god. He was just a philosopher. This is your way of life. So it is. You know, I have to move on. So another thing is that we talked about so the rape, but but why I started sure. comedy again. Yes, well, thank you. I, I forgot to tell you that's that's one of the big ones. Huh? So I was working on my foundation and you know training teachers on different uh, um, applications and and uh, then July sixth, a little girl was had been murdered the same year that I was raped, murdered and raped, nineteen seventy three, two, mm-hmm. two or three months later. She was eleven years old. We both left Lincoln, which is the school we were teaching at. We both were strangled, and we both were raped. So for a year, for a couple of years, the police were still interviewing me five years ago, thinking that this might be a serial rapist and that our rapes were connected. Mm-hmm. And so July 6th, they released some DNA, and it was all over the L.A. Times, what, what, what this guy might look like. Mm-hmm. And then they got a hit on the DNA and actually found the murderer uh, two weeks ago. And again, it was all, yes, it was all over the news and the CBS interviewed me because, and I went to the press release because I have had what we would call survivor's guilt. Because if you're 26 years old and you're raped, you have the mindset and the mentality to try to deflect the rapist. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I jokingly say it was the best lay down comedy I've ever done because I was trying to make him laugh. You know, and he said, if you try to make me laugh again, you're dead. You know, wow. and, you know, trying wow. to talk him over the story about the, about the, about the um, March of Dimes. You know, constantly trying to get him away from this rage, whatever he was going through. But when you're 26, you have the ability to activate a survival, survival, and, and which I was trying to do. But when you're 11 years old, you're just attacked. I think the last words somebody heard her say was, stop, you're hurting me. And, and that's, that was, uh, and that's, you know, she's just, she's just 11 years old and she was murdered. So my survival guilt is I, you know, I survived because I had guilt that she did it, you know, and, and I just wished I could, you know, give her whatever it is I had to walk out of that, but she didn't survive. And it's just, no, uh, it's, uh, but anyway, so the police actually just called me yesterday to tell me that, unfortunately, my my rape kit was with the Orange County uh, Sheriff's Department, and they had destroyed it, so I'm never going to know. Uh, however, when he's when he's brought here, I'm going to ask him point blank, do you remember a story about Martha Dimes <laughs> by any chance? Are you the guy? <laughs> no, wow. Do you feel yeah. like you could recognize him? I know it's been over 40, 40 years, years. 45 no, years. No, because when I looked at the... No, primarily it's because one of the one of his tactics or techniques was that he took my clothes and wrapped uh, my, my pants around my neck, and that's what he was using to strangle, and then my my blouse around my face so I couldn't see, because I couldn't see. And, that and see, that's why I thought maybe, and, and, but they wouldn't tell me at the police department when I talked to them yesterday, um, you know, the, the, the profile of the rape itself. Did she have clothes around her neck? Did she have clothes around her face? You know, 
but he did say, which was, I don't know, good news, that mine was more brutal than hers, which I don't know what that means, but uh, but they're not allowed to talk about it. So, yeah. In fact, yeah. you know, they never even used the word rape during all 40 years until the until the uh, DA until two weeks ago. They used oh, the term sexually They didn't even say sexually assaulted. Now they now now they're now they're saying it. And I think when you think about the poor parents, her poor parents, who have both died, by the way, uh, mm-hmm. and you know they never got closure to that. They never got closure. Wow, what a nightmare. Yeah, so anyway, that July 6th was when the first thing, and I I think I got what maybe you know more than anybody, is possibly a little mini, uh, like a mini stroke, a little post-traumatic stress syndrome, you know. All of a sudden, this this event that I had compartmentalized and shut behind a door and not addressed and not talked about um, suddenly became exposed. And I suddenly went, whoa, you know, and now it's all out and again and... And I realized, and so it kind of brought back my comedy, and I thought, wait, I'm retired. I don't have papers to read. I don't have parent conferences. There's no reason I can't do my teacher training and also do a little comedy on the side. So yeah. July 6th, when that was released, was when I started doing my comedy again. And I think Amazing. I did my first 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 time on stage again, like the end of July. And then mm-hmm. then started doing, I mean, I only booked like once or twice. And you know, and again, Hardest about about comedy is you got to test it and revive it. You you got to have more platforms. And trying to find a place to do clean comedy is is a, is a struggle. And mm-hmm. uh, so I have this wonderful set of parents and community that when I do a big show, I'll have twenty or thirty people uh, come down and just support me. Which that way I can keep my comedy as clean as possible. <laughs> I don't have to worry about saying. Uh, it, saying things, you know, or I don't have to say, so, anyway. Very good. Well, this is such a delicious conversation. I appreciate it so much. I'm just going to kind of do a little quick check-in here. We're talking with Claire Ratfield, and uh, Claire is a rape survivor as well as a stand-up comedian um, working at the comedy store back in the 70s um, with people like David Letterman, George Carlin, Robin Williams. Um, and Cheryl, Sorry. from what's happening. I like to call yeah, her yeah. Cheryl, though. Like, Sorry, like yeah. I know. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah. call her Cheryl on what's happening. And like, I took a picture with her. It's so it's a, such a coincidence that you and I have just connected recently because um, I coincidentally took a picture right next to her because she has a framed picture at the comedy store, and I just like was like Cheryl from <laughs> Cheryl from uh, what's Isn't happening. That? Isn't that weird? I mean, now talk about serendipity. When we right? meet, you know, we meet, and then I didn't know what you meant by that. Now I know what you meant. You had uh, actually taken a picture of her at the comedy store. I did a selfie then, with Cheryl. Oh my gosh, that's that is so amazing. Isn't that wild? You keep thinking all these forces are like, you know, redirecting our lives. I mean, it's just you right. know, it can't yeah. just be all coincidence. She's right. Yeah. Next, her picture is right next to Chris Delia, who who Delia Delia Chris Delia, who yeah. is a, a paid regular now, and he's getting really big. And I see him all the time at the comedy store in in Hollywood. And her picture it's so funny because it was like three people who are really modern. I don't remember what the other two are right now, but right next to Cheryl. And then I was like getting in the middle, and I was like, woo. So anyway, it's really cool um, that you were traveling with her and opening for her. 
Um, I would like to talk with you about a couple other things. There's a couple other things I want to talk with you about that we've mentioned a little bit um, already, which is um, the idea of, you know, people getting so big in famous and rich and we think like they've made it and they've made it to the heights. You know, we're talking about raising yourself and rising up and in that metaphorical way, not rising up to the top floor of the rooftop. I was like, Oh, that's interesting. She's talking about, right. She wanted, you wanted to rise up. And it's like, sometimes I think it's interesting to look at like what we want to get out of, you know, the, the, the suffering, the pain that we're in. And like this idea that Robin Williams committed suicide after being at such, you know, the top of the world, you know, we would think that somebody like him, you couldn't rise any higher. And yet he was in a place of so much desperation to take his own life. And yet he had a family and children and um, such a booming, thriving career and was in such great contribution with his comedy. It's like, how can any of us like even aspire to such heights, let alone feel like, okay, or understand that, that suicide could happen to somebody so who's so high up. And I don't know what to make of it other than it's like this possibility of a need to resolve trauma, revitalize our soul, believe and ho- have hope for something better. I don't know. I'd like to hear your perspective on that and your experience with Robin Williams and like, you know, if you have some insight on that. Well, that's actually good because Robin, this is why it's such a paradox, is Robin was yeah. the the polar opposite of, shall I say, other ones of my friends that became, you know, that jettisoned into stardom and they became what I would call more distant. And, and I think probably it's just like becoming a billionaire or a millionaire. Then people start wanting to use you to leverage their own talents and I think probably that's why they become they pull back that they feel like the people are trying to use them instead of be their friends anymore. I mean I'm just guessing that. But Robin always kept that that common man that we're all in this together. And it was yeah. such a it was and I and I just have to tell you actually one other funny story about him that if you just if you think in terms of how he treated he was he got in a fist fight with the guy from uh, from uh, uh, who was a voice of Roger Rabbit. I just got to Google it. I forgot what his name is. <laughs> and, and, and so the National Choir was doing a story on him stealing material, and they were, they were skulking all over the comedy store, and I knew they were there, and, I was, and I, we had, we'd had a relationship. I said, Robin, they're coming to get you. He said, they just did a story on my family that just destroyed my family. I said, I've got to God. protect myself. And so, so he said, I want you to stand you know, right there so I know so I can ready to ready to respond. If, you know, so I stood right by the table of the National Choir people, and, and they yelled out in the middle of his act, hey, Mr. Williams, we hear you steal material. This is another one of those comedic moments that's not on video, that'll never be seen. It's only in the images of people who were there at that moment in time. But he put himself on trial. He was a judge. He was the jury. He was a prosecuting attorney. He was the defense attorney. I've never seen anything like it in my life. And it was, it, 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 people were giving testimony, and at the very end, the, the judge gets the note from the jury, says, uh, Mr. Williams, uh, uh, it's come to a verdict. Uh, we've uh, decided that uh, your 
you don't steal people's material. You you borrow it and improve upon it. Uh-huh. But the whole audience went ballistic. They were laughing so hard. <laughs> but I mean, that's that's you know that's it. And he and, and to thank me, he said he was going to come down to my school and uh, do an assembly for my kids or something. It's, it's things that you know we never. You kept saying, "I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it." You know, but he kept. He never became Robin Williams. He always became the person that was there when we all started. And it and it's just that's such a rare treat. But that goes back to 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 fame. Fame is as much as a destructive force as it is a positive force. There are mm-hmm. so many miserable, miserable rich people, billionaires, um, stars, because at one point, they have to realize that money is not what brings you joy. Being on stage, it's who you are and how you define yourself and how you contribute. I, I'm working with this billionaire. I'm actually on Twitter, and he, 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 he connects me because I'm one I'm trying to get money from him, but, and he knows it. And, uh, but he, he also follows me. And, and if you go on Twitter, his name is Jeff Hoffman, and he was the former owner of Priceline. He started LinkedIn. His story, I mean, he's got billions of dollars. To see what he does with his money is why he's so happy. He's in Watts mm. trying to redesign Watts. He's mm. into India. And, and, he, and in India, he did exactly what you just said. He said, we have to make children believe that they are special. We have to stop ruining children. That's, mm. If you go, go on Twitter and go look at it. Because he knows what money means, and and I read I read a blog about him. <clears throat> and this is my most favorite line, and I'll send you. I made a I made a poster for him of anybody that's wealthy or famous, of what how they transformed their life. <clears throat> After he made his first billion, he um, was sitting in a hotel room, kind of feeling used by people and whatnot, <clears throat> and he saw a television show where they're shutting down a woman's a woman's shelter. And he found himself jumping up saying, somebody needs to do something about that. And then he realized, there's no they, there's me. I need to do something about that. And he funded that woman's shelter. And that's what he does. He goes around, in addition to making money on, on projects, he goes around and funds things that will transform life. And he's the happiest person I know. Wow. And, and that so is inspiring. what I know. I know. It, it, I just, you know, I keep waiting for him to send me my ten million. And I, I said to him, I said, <laughs> my last, my last, my last text to him. I mean, he emailed me. I said, because he didn't write me for a couple of weeks, and, and I said, over a couple of months, and they go, oh my god, did I upset you? And I said, I need ten million. And he sends me like, no, it's not too much for you want to do. We'll talk. Well, I'm still waiting for him to come back and talk to me. Yeah, I love that. I <laughs> want to see that one day. Let me just try it out. My favorite book of all time is called The Magnificent Obsession. And it's uh-huh. based on the principle that you give and you give anonymously because if you do it for fame, you lose everything. Mm-hmm. You do it, and the whole TV series The Millionaire was based on that. Was based on that book, The Magnificent Obsession, the mm-hmm. obsession to give back to the world, but not for your satisfaction, not to put your name on a building, not to, but because it's going to change the world. 
and it's a book. It's it's a book from the '30s. It's the same guy that wrote uh, the Robe. It has a kind of has a little bit of a Christian Christian uh, kind of tone to it. But but okay. it, actually, that's a Jewish. Isn't that a Jewish? It's got a name in Judaism about giving back. Absolutely. It's yeah. yeah, it's a term. Oh. I forgot what it is. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I don't. I yeah. don't know if you're thinking of a mitzvah. Are you, I no, don't, no, no. That's the only thing I know. I don't know. But it's some Jewish term about giving back because it. If you have things, it's that's how you change the world. Is you yeah. give back, and then, and then going back to all right. these people that have this money, they never have recognized what real joy is, and that's who they are, and what they can do, not. Not this this superficial thing with having a lot of money and all the five thousand cars and all the different things that they have. You know, it, that that doesn't bring you joy. Mm-hmm. You know, the Greek the Greeks said it years ago. You know, you things don't bring you joy. You bring joy to yourself. Mm-hmm. And I forget the Greek that said that, but uh, it was some line about be not proud of of the thing you have purchased. Be proud of who you are or something like that. It's from the Greeks. That's right. Yeah, yeah. earlier yeah. you said something so beautiful along those lines of like, it's not, you know, it's not like it's what you have uh, so much as it's who you are and how you contribute that is going to make you happy, that is going to bring us that fulfillment and that connection to our soul's fulfillment and, and yeah. truth and upliftment that we're all just scrambling for in so many different ways that are, often temporary or false or, um, you know, not leading us to what we're actually looking for. And I, I think um, you had brought up uh, with me, we're having a different conversation, this idea that Justin Bieber just came out talking about that he's struggling with depression. Yeah, that was on Twitter, yeah. It was and, on Twitter. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it, was just, it was just yesterday about uh, breaking his pants and he was going to have to get through it. And I go, well, that man shouldn't be, shouldn't be, Unhappy, he got, then he just right. get married, and you know what? What's not fulfilling for him? And he's been suffering terrible depression, and yeah. that's not good. He's twenty five years old, you know. Crazy, and, uh, so crazy. I know, and uh, I know somebody pointed out, uh, you know, the tragic lies. I, I forget the oh, the name of the actor who just died recently, or they just noticed it in and just just alcoholism and. And uh, just self-destructive behavior. I just, I, I just, I, it's just so sad. Yeah. So sad. They need, they need the, they need the vision of the blind man. <laughs> they do. Where's the blind man? Where's the blind man? They need a, a blind man needs to help them see that there's more to money. There's more to life than money. Yeah. 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 It's so, who you are, how you contribute, and how you move through these these life challenges and recognize that. I heard this really great quote recently that was something like, suicide doesn't uh, um, end your your problems or something so much as that it ends the possibility um, of them getting better, something like right. that. So it's like to recognize that even though we're all su- we're all half suffering, experience suffering, that it actually does come and go. That pain yeah. ends, and there is hope in, in that. And so I, I just I, appreciate I know, that. I know that, no, no, I, yeah. I know that in, in my, you haven't seen me do my concealed gun carrier wrap that I've done, but before I do it, I, I put on Nike clothes, a hat, and whatnot, and I say, when you wear Nike, do you feel like you just have to do it? 
And I don't don't think 72-year-old white woman doing a rap was on Nike's vision plan. But, Nike, (laughs) you gave me the power. Let's do it. I think Nike, the reason I say that, I think Nike, within their slogan, has the capacity to do national suicide prevention. Just Mm. do it. Do life. Just do life. Because you see that, of course, they got in a lot of trouble with that blown up shoot thing, which I just think is almost, I mean, hello, that's, you know, one in, it's, you know, it's a Six Sigma, what they call the Six Sigma, one in 100 million chances of happening and it happening for national television. But they also, uh, you know, the, what is it, the, what is it, Kaepernick, what was his name, the guy that, that kneeled, and they, uh, what's his name? Oh, I you know, know, the, I know. The football player, I, I can't, Kaepernick, what yeah. his name is. Anyway, they stood, they, stood, they stood behind him because of of his belief that he believed something right or wrong. I, I can't believe that a national company like Nike would take that kind of risk. And I don't know about you, but I went out and bought like about two hundred dollars of the Nike crap. I just said that's it. <laughs> you're gonna, here's here's my master charge. I'm sorry. And don't even give me the discount. I'm going to be so bright. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's how you contribute, isn't it? It's how you contribute. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> it's your donation really, to I, Nike. I just, I just, I wish, I, there needs to be some national spokesman. Because it is, I don't know, we, we had down here in terms yeah. of suicide, we, we had a little kid commit suicide over the dumbest reason. Well, one of it was, you know, school culture. There was a teacher that was brutalizing him. And uh, that, but wow. but he still doesn't give an excuse. I mean, I, I'm not accusing the child, but his, but the fact that he didn't have some sort of internal dialogue or some sort of training, which which school should be giving in terms of trying to reframe those those negative thoughts, is is you know we we we, we because suicide is rising at such an alarming rate. I think San Juan Capuchano or San Clemente had like six over the summer last year. I mean, it's at 13 years old to 18 years old. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just out of control. Yeah. Out of control. And, and the media is, you know, the social media is not making us more social. It's making us, it's, 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 it's creating a bunch of social ignorance, people, social ignorance. We're less connected. Yeah. You know, you, and, you know. And, I want to say social retardation. Like, yeah. social media is not making us more social. It's creating a bunch of social retardation. Yeah. I, I have a whole bit I did on, do on emojis. Which I think is like, you know, are you kidding me? Anyways, but um, but it is. And I start out with emojis and I say something like, okay, there's 350 new emojis today, which essentially eliminates the need for an alphabet. So we can go back to caveman days, right? And we can just like... <laughs> like they did and say, oh, look, kill the Macedon, you know, check, check, heart, you know, <laughs> just going back to drawing. That's what we're doing. We're just communicating with pictures now. We have not gone much. How far have we, you know, right. evolved from caves, you know, 500,000 years ago? Can I tell so, you a funny story real quick? We, we just got yeah, a couple yeah. minutes, but I really want to tell you this yeah. funny story that's relevant to this, too, yeah. with this idea yeah. of, like, what's happening to us in social media. I went for a hike the other day with a friend, a good guy friend of mine. And as we were coming off the trail, we went, we were walking by some parked cars and there was a guy probably, you know, his early twenties, like 21 year old 
little young guy um, trying to get with his with his uh, hood open on his car, trying to get the oil cap um, off his car to add oil to the car. And we were like, hey, you doing all right? He's like, yeah, I'm just trying to um, get the cap off and I can't get it off. So then my friend just tries to turn it and he's not the most like muscular person in the world, but he just turned it relatively easily. And then he was like, you know, do you want help with pouring it in? And he was like, no, that's okay. I got it. And we were like, okay. And we realized like the whole time we'd been walking up to see what was going on, the guy was just standing there like he didn't know what to do. And um, we figured that the problem must have been a lot more complicated than just not getting the cap off. And then meanwhile, you know, the guy's like, no, I'm good. And then like shakes our hand and says, thanks for your help. And then as we walk by the car, there's two young guys about that age, 20, 21, sitting in the car um, on their phones, like doing social media stuff with their thumbs. And we we're like, they have no muscle development. They're just sitting there and they're not even, like, able to get a gap, an oil cap off. And they're just sitting there in the car like, what do we do? We can't do anything. So let's go on, let's go on Twitter. <laughs> this is a funny story. There's a joke. There's like gotta be, there's two guys, you know, two guys sitting in a car. Side of the road. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's like, what's going on? They weren't even socialized. They weren't even talking to each other. They weren't even being like, you know, how else can we get the cap off? They were just like sitting there, like. What they probably were doing, they were probably Googling how to get off the cap. <laughs> I hope so. At least that would be useful. Yeah. Oh my gosh. All right. So thank you so much, Claire. We're at the end of our time here today. And just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and to share your great wisdom and triumph as a, um, as a comedian, as a, a Broadway producer, as a uh, MC at the comedy store, as a woman, a, a survivor of many things in life, um, including an incredibly um, traumatic experience of having been raped and survived. And now this is coming back up in the news. Um, appreciate you so much. I wonder if we have time to play the little news clip. Do you want me to play the little news clip? I don't know. We got like one minute. Yeah. All right. We'll just wrap it up. We got a news clip from CBS, a a short about a minute clip here where uh, Claire was on the the news bringing up the story that happened like about 40, a little more than 45 years ago. Um, And this little girl that did not survive and now, there's a tra- traumatic experiences being brought back into the into the light, and and we're we're, we're finding reasons to laugh through even this, this survivor guilt that's coming up. I'm going to play it real quick, and then we'll we'll wrap up. Okay. 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 Here we go. Hopefully, it'll the sound will come through. This photo of 11-year-old Linda O'Keefe still hangs in the detective bureau at the Newport Beach Police Station, more than 45 years after her murder became front page news. Tonight, we have learned from sources that the haunting case, which investigators never gave up on, has finally been solved. Last summer, the department released old crime scene photos and a video on social media to try and get fresh leads. On Friday, July 6, 1973, Linda was walking home from summer school when she was abducted. Her body was found the next morning. Now, a man is in custody, sources say, for the strangulation of the former Corona Del Mar Middle School student. O'Keefe was found in the weeds in the back bay wearing this dress, 
Reporters will find out Wednesday whether the alleged killer looks anything like the sketch that was developed by a Virginia-based company using DNA evidence. The images show his possible age progression from 1973 to now. I want to be down there tomorrow. Over the years, police have interviewed Claire Radfield, who was a teacher at Lincoln Intermediate, which is now Lincoln Elementary ah. School. Like Linda O'Keefe, Radfield was attacked after leaving the campus strangled, but she survived. That was four months before the young girl was killed. Ratfield's case remains unsolved. You know, I've always carried this little girl's memory with me because I thought, you know, she, she didn't live, and she was so young, and she was so vital, and she had such a life ahead of her. Yeah, so thank you for sharing that, Claire. I'm sure it's got to bring up so much emotion and feeling for you, and it's kind of... Uh awkward place for us to end, but I just wanted to share that and, and acknowledge you and what you're moving through and the courage that it takes to move through such a trauma all over again and have it be in the media and in the LA Times on television and um, and just acknowledging you for, you know, the, the healing that you have moved through as well. You know, there's so much trauma going on in the world both currently and already past, and um, you're such a symbol to me of our capacity to heal and turn darkness into light and turn pain into into joy for yourself and for others. So I just want to really honor you and embrace you, Claire, and thank you so much for sharing this story with all of us today. Oh, thank you, Jenna. Thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to try to maybe, you know, ha- have people use this as a way to transcend their own trauma. That's right. That's right. That is both possible and happening, and Claire's life is a testament to that. Um, appreciate your your courage and your your story so much. If, if anybody would like to contact Claire or um, contribute to her foundation, she can be reached at C, like Claire, Ratfield, R-A-T-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com, and we'll be posting more information um, about her and her background on the BBS Radio um, website, radio station website. So um, I am Jenna Grayson, your host of this show, The Hypnotic Comic Live, and uh, I'll be performing stand-up comedy this Friday once again at... uh, the comedy store is a seven o'clock show. Hope to see you all there. And thank you so much, Claire. Appreciate you. Big thanks out to Doug and Don, the twins of my heart, producing <laughs> the show. You'll be you'll be doing comedy and I'll be doing it at the computer user conference in Palm Springs. Is that right? <laughs> to to bring my district to a new level, it says. Okay. That sounds funny. <laughs> I know. It is funny if you knew what I was going through, but I gotta keep it a secret. Okay. I appreciate <laughs> it. All right. I'll tell you thank you to right, the listeners. Right. We'll give great thanks to the listeners and we will see you and hear you next week, next Monday at the same time, same place, twelve noon on Mondays on BBS Radio. Thank you so much.